AVXL episode 179 was recorded on April 30th, 2022. Samsung's QD OLED cheats on tests. Big speakers versus little speakers. New gear from Hypex and one more. John Wick Chapter 4 and quite a bit more. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, really, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly contributions make this show possible. We appreciate you. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AV Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We're excited to be here. It is the tail end of the last of the end of the end of April. Yeah, it is. Last day of the month. Tornadoes baby. are tearing up Kansas, or at least parts of Kansas. I am happy that the weather control system stashed inside of the... Uh, Gateway Arch here in St. Louis continues to direct the weather and protect the city. That's a St. Louis joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> I just I just learned about that this morning. It has been quite breezy here, but not to the level of generated tornadoes. Thank goodness. Oh, my goodness. California does not need lots of tornadoes. <laughs> We've got enough. I'm going to. Yeah, you've got enough natural disasters. I guess um, technically tornadoes happen everywhere. But there are places where it is more common than not. Well, there are places where they used to be incredibly uncommon that they're very common now. Um, and places where they used to be more common, they're less common. But that's a conversation for another day because I want to talk about John Wick Chapter 4. Do which it. Which I totally missed the announcement. Of. No, because no, I want you to talk about what's going on with Samsung's QD OLEDs. Because um, oh, this yeah. reminds me of benchmark cheats on 2d graphics cards back when i was a child um or at least in my early 20s which seems so childlike by comparison to who i am now are, are they actually cheating on on benchmarks or tests in a sense technically and i give credit to mr vincentio over at hdtv test for spotting this odd quirk with the new samsung s95b qd oled tv in his recent videos, he's been going over the performance of that panel. Mm -hmm. When we talk about HDR TVs and testing them specifically, generally speaking, with every HDR TV out there, you will only use a 10% window size in terms of the test pattern sure. you put up on the screen. It prevents the screen and different technologies from clipping brightness levels or things like that, being running out of juice, so to speak, when you're actually doing the measurements and setup. And doing a 10% style test on the S95B apparently puts it into a special mode that produces very pretty graphs and charts, but it does not actually represent <laughs> a picture performance when watching regular content. Uh, specifically, they were boosting color saturation and luminance for more pop with Ooh. levels that measured well above the standard. Game mode was the worst culprit by far, but it affected the quote-unquote filmmaker mode as well, and that is a no-no, really. I would expect now that this has been revealed that Samsung probably will make a firmware update that makes at least the filmmaker mode behave appropriately and hopefully the TV's built-in movie mode. And it's just a good reminder that Samsung did not become the number one TV manufacturer in the world by following the rules. They really do take seriously just the subjective, what's your gut feeling about this picture setup? <laughs> and roll with it that way. Interesting, uh, with Mr. Tio doing this testing, he discovered this by simply changing the window test size from that typical 10%, like I mentioned, to something, say, like 9% or 5%. And oh, wow. receiving completely different results. It's not a great look, but it is the reason why so many people will, at least in regular side-by-side -side comparisons, if you are A, being these TVs next to each other, or I should say the S95B next to something else, True. it's going to make that Samsung look a little more eye-pleasing or popping, that, that extra punch. It's like adding volume to a speaker, and it, it will sound subjectively better compared to a speaker yeah. that's generally not as loud. Anyway, it's a, it's a well, quirk, I mean, that's... and I'm glad it's been discovered. <laughs> it, it, oh, it's good for me to know these quirk. things. It's very gracious of you to call it a quirk. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things you run into, right, uh, is, you know, a half a decibel, a decibel, a, a, a tiny fraction of increased volume when you are A-B testing products. 
your ear will essentially pick the louder product. It's it's like a thing. It's part of psychoacoustics. You have to incredibly tightly match products by volume to do fair comparisons between them when you're audio testing. So this is, you know. <laughs> hey, they're, they're taking a cue from the, the audio folks. I have a feeling this may have been happening even before this particular TV. And I'm sure other manufacturers have done similar things. Right. It puts the calibrator in an odd spot or anybody doing trying to do a proper review of this TV and using the industry standard test sizes and patterns and coming up with, you know, results that really don't represent what you're seeing in terms of actual content. And that's just a, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how they There's respond. There's an easy way to fix this. Totally. Just put all TVs in vivid mode and leave them there. Forget about calibration. Hey, vivid Just is put popular. put vivid mode and wait for your eyebrows to turn. Your eyebrows, your eyeballs to turn brown. <laughs> it can get warm. To cook in the light. Oh, wow. I don't know how I missed. Uh, I guess the, ch- the trailer came out like two weeks ago. John Wick Chapter 4, uh, possibly around CinemaCon, which is the big theater show or trade show which uh, sounds like theater owners are starting to get more enthusiastic about life in the future again. Um, it's about a year out, 324-23 is the release date. Um, you know, it's a John Wick movie. gun mayhem, relationships, strange, you know, underworld, made-up underworlds that are fascinatingly weird and deep. Um, the other thing that uh, came out was Lionsgate is producing The Continental, which is going to be a three-part uh, miniseries prequel to the John Wick universe that's going to show up on stars oh. and ballerina goes into production this summer. That's going to star, uh, Anna D. Armas. Uh, you may know her from James Bond or Blade Runner 2049 fame or, or any number of other things she's done. She's going to be a ballerina assassin from Rusca Roma. If you don't know what Rusca Roma is, uh, John Wick chapter three, that whole scene where John Wick ends up in this amazing conversation with Angelica Houston. That's the Rusca Roma training ground. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it Expect guns and mayhem. <laughs> I now realize that I own John Wick Chapter 3 on high def Blu-ray or 4K Blu-ray, but I have never watched it and I probably should watch it for the I'll, I'll add that to the stack that's currently sitting right oh. behind uh, right beside the Blu-ray player that I have hooked up right now to the TV. This this may be dangerously close to being a spoiler. I'm just going to say this. John Wick 3, it's all about Halle Berry and the dogs. You should watch it as soon as we finish this podcast just to see Halle Berry and the dogs. It's like dog foo. I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> Shifted gears. Uh, my wife was like, I wish our dog could do that. <laughs> our dog is half husky. Our dog can't remember things that long. Um, I don't think we've ever talked about this television in depth, at least not as much as we've talked about Samsung's The Frame. Uh, but Samsung's Serif, it's another part of their lineup, uh, their lifestyle lineup. It's a QLED screen, but, quote, unlike conventional TVs, it doesn't belong next to the wall. That's because it's got a detachable four-leg floor stand. And it has this, instead of being as thin as possible, they kind of gave it this very tall, looks like a very long stretched out I-beam shape when you look at it from the side. Uh, and to get marketing speaky from Samsung, the serif looks beautiful from front to back, side to side, and can elegantly decorate any space, which reminds me of the sort of built-in kickstand that Sony did on a bunch of their early OLEDs, except this won't be sitting on the floor. It'll be more at eye level. Interesting option if you're looking for something other than a wall hanging TV or something that goes on a piece of furniture the frame is kind of fascinating to me excuse me the serif the frame is fascinating too but for different reasons the samsung serif is an option um they're like 500 off right now uh they're not cheap right the 43 inch version is 800 the 65 inch version is currently 1500 that's with that 500 discount but it is an interesting uh you know, when you're looking at a television less as I need the most state-of-the-art visual acuity I can experience and more of I need something I can put in this room that won't ugly it up. Uh, right. Might be something to put on your list. I find so. the design quite appealing. There's something about it yeah. that is just, yeah, it, it, it is not something you would necessarily want to hang on the wall. It, this is really made to, like, be on its own custom stand and uh, yeah. just that visual profile of it with that I-beam style design. I, I, it's I, very, it's, it's got I a like. little, it's got a little 
mid-century modern flavor. It's got a little modern design flavor. It looks like it could blend in a lot of settings. Mm. Yummy. <laughs> Yummy. Always good to hear. Uh, one more has a new flagship. True wireless active noise-canceling earbud, or at least they will, starting on May 10th. The Evo. Uh, Luca Bernardi did the tuning. He's worked on a number of uh, one more projects. He's a producer. He's got Grammys. His ideal tuning, I think, uh, was described as flat with love, which is to say not exactly flat, but not exactly oppressively, you know, smiley shaped in the tuning. Sonarworks Sound ID is going to be built in, I believe, into the one more app that's associated with the Evo. If you never played around with Sound ID, you essentially go through and do yes or no on tests. They play, or at least last time I used it, you would listen to something, and it was kind of like being in the eye doctor where, you know, they they flick something and it's like, you know, more clear, less clear, and then they flick it and then they flick it. Well, they do this and they essentially uh, tweak the sound to your personal preferences interesting um, they did that i think on one more's comfa buds i was a little cranky when i wrote this uh and my I, I have in my notes that deets are limited and buzzword heavy and that's because uh i have been helping someone evaluate a number of different speakers and i keep getting emails that are like this one goes from 20 hertz to forty thousand hertz which is great except that there's no plus or minus db along with that 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, right? So if something is, you know, plus or minus 3 dB from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, that means it's relatively flat, and you'll actually be able to hear all of the frequencies. What we see in a lot of cases, especially when there's people talking about, well, this is a high-definition headphone or a high-resolution headphone. It goes to 40,000 hertz. It's like, look, you can't hear above 20,000 hertz, so don't tell me about 40,000 hertz, uh, number one. And number two, if you don't give me you know, a plus or minus dB range for that frequency response, you know, you may be able to measure 30 hertz or 20 hertz, but it may be 10 or 20 dB below the rest of the, the frequency response. It becomes all um, but meaningless, really. I mean, yeah. if a speaker could possibly, or even a pair of headphones or earbuds, produce uh, a variance between 20 hertz and 40 kilohertz at, say, 3 dB, that would be an amazing audio experience. Yeah. I, I just don't know of anything that can possibly do that, at least with today's well, technology. And I could be wrong, but... Well, there's well, we can talk about that another day. So, yeah. and, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to savage one more because one more makes a lot of great earbuds, and they make a lot of great earbuds at very affordable prices. In fact, I think the one more piston, uh, the Bluetooth version, is is uh, Laura Dragon's pick for a sub fifty dollar earbud over at the wire cutter. So let me say, I have a lot of love for one more. I'm just a little cranky about specs. This is a, essentially a hybrid or a two-way system. They got a balanced armature doing the highs and a 10 millimeter uh, DLC dynamic driver for the mids and bass. DLC is generally diamond-like carbon. Uh, it's one of the many ways of getting a stiffer or lighter uh, dynamic driver, i.e. They, they coat a material with the DLC, or maybe it's you know a DLC product. Um, I don't think they're going to reveal that information until later. If you want to nerd out, DLC is a hydrogen-containing amorphous carbon material. It's atomic structure between H, hydrogen, and SP3, diamond. What they're talking about is they have a, a small... Well, it's big by earbud standards. It's small compared to a desktop speaker or, or room speaker. But essentially, they have a, a fairly hefty 10-millimeter driver to hand the mids and the lows and a balanced armature to do the highs. Um, mm. Adaptive uh, noise cancellation. They call it 42 decibels of total noise cancellation, but they don't have a chart because generally noise cancellation is more effective or works at stronger levels at different frequencies but essentially they're saying they have a lot of noise cancellation into this what's really interesting is they're claiming they've got uh their adaptive anc will quote intelligently detect the ambient noise by an algorithm that will remove the surrounding noise which is kind of the whole point of noise cancellation right there's there's a feedback loop involving microphones but they're saying that the the buds will automatically change the level of noise suppression accordingly for the best possible listening experience um, which sounds kind of like the whole point of everybody's ANC, but they're claiming theirs does some interesting stuff. Again, very, very curious to hear it. They've, they've done some really good stuff on uh, active noise cancellation, considering one more is not the size of, say, Sony uh, or, or Bose. Or maybe they are, and I just don't realize it. But uh, I really want to hear what their wind noise resistant modes sound like, because I've found a lot of uh, ANC you know, headphones or earbuds that are very, very good at dealing with things like 
you know, the drone of a jet engine or a server room or an AC unit are not so good at dealing with when you're walking around in the streets and wind blows on you. So I'm very, very curious about that. LDAC is one of the supported codecs. Um, they're talking about six microphones, three per earbuds, and an AI-powered deep neural network algorithm. And I'm very curious because I'm always looking for earbuds with microphones that don't suck. Um, so if they've got it built into these, I will be delighted. Uh, they're claiming eight hours of playback time. No uh, info as to whether that's ANSI on or off. Uh, 15 minutes fast charge for four hours playback. 28 hours playtime with the case. Bluetooth 5.2, so you can connect to two devices simultaneously, which is something I'm uh, looking forward to playing around with. 169.99 and 30 bucks off for the first month of sale. That's basically uh, May 10th through June 8th. One more has done a lot of really nice gear uh, over the years, and uh, I'm very, very curious to hear the Evo because it's it's kind of like their flagship. Totally. And if they are delivering Sony level performance at half the price, that will be tremendously badass. So we'll it still kind of goes. blows me away that a single earbud can have three microphones in it <laughs> for some reason yes. and a battery and the speaker system. And well, it's it. Yeah, I was gonna say it, it's got a driver, a balanced armature. Uh, an amplifier, Bluetooth, wireless circuitry, probably some level of DSP. Uh, Driving the AI. And the battery. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on there. Or at least the neural network as it was trained. These are little miracles of engineering. So, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious to hear new earbuds. Um, in part because, you know, well, conversation for another day. I'm, I'm not going to go down that particular rat hole. I've, I have been amazed at how many... You know, thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five hundred dollar earbuds that have really wonky frequency response curves, and maybe I just have the right ears for them. But it's kind of amazing when when somebody's flagship, you know, sounds like a realistic speaker playing in your brother's garage, as in no bass and some really buzzy highs. Again, I might be a little cranky, but one more has done a really good job of delivering stuff that if, even if it's not the most neutral sound, it still sounds pretty good and amazing for the money. So we look forward to hearing the one more Evo, hopefully in May. So uh, Hypex, I think you guys have heard me talk about this. They, they manufacture some of the best uh, Class D amp modules you can buy, or more accurately, uh, manufacturers can buy. They actually work with uh, a DIY, a couple different places where you can buy their modules and the power supplies to build your own amps, get your DIY on. But we've seen these modules show up in amplifiers from ATI, NAD, TIAC, um, some smaller boutique companies like March or Nord, or uh, one recent one that I found through uh, Audio Science Review. They're up on uh, uh, US Audio Mart is uh, Buckeye Audio. Essentially, uh, you get some epic performance, as in, you know, incredibly flat response, incredibly low noise levels, incredibly powerful amplifiers um, for not a huge amount of money, depending on who's building it and how they're implementing it. I should also point out March is only doing Purify modules now, and I mention that because the Hypex uh, Encore inventor, which is Bruno Putzi's which hopefully I'm saying properly. He launched uh, Purify, another Class D amp manufacturer that's also doing some speaker drivers in 2019. He was also behind Keys, uh, audio-powered speakers, and a bunch of other slick Class D amplification uh, stuff. Um, so Hypex now has a new iteration of the Encore, the Encore X Class D amplifier technology, the NCX 500 OEM. Um, Hypex says, and again, turn on your hype meters, will afford at least 2x better performance compared to the original Encore products. The reason for the X designation, as in exceptional, <laughs> with a big X in exceptional, a capitalized X, intercapped X in exceptional. I'm kind of curious what the 2X better performance is, right? Because Hypex current Encore modules, they are flat from like 20 to 10,000 kilohertz, and they drop maybe a quarter of a dB between uh, 10 and 20,000 kilohertz, which is effectively flat. Nice. Hypex told Audio Express, quote, because the NCX 500 OEM module can do more current, the rated power of 700 watts at 4 ohm is now also available at 2 ohm, which is to say this is a beast of an amplifier. When you think 2 ohm loads, you're thinking about chaining subwoofers or some ridiculously uh, power-hungry subwoofers in you know competitive car scenarios. 
In any case, uh, looking forward to seeing these coming out. Um, they're supposed to be essentially design compatible with existing OEM products. They're like a drop-in replacement for the NC500 modules that are currently sold. So props to Hypex for uh, iterating a very, very powerful uh, module, a very, very powerful Class D amplifier. So, I mean, and I got to say that I, mean, I would assume they're going to come out with other modules because, you know, these 500 modules are ridiculously powerful and vastly more powerful than most people need. They have modules that are not as powerful, uh, you know, in the sort of 100, 200 watt range. So I would assume that we're going to see this technology trickle down across their lineup. If you're curious about, you know, building one of their amplifiers, DIY Class D is uh what you're looking for so very some cool good stuff yeah that's some good stuff they make some very nice amplification technology um emotive has got a sale on speakers the uh, air motive b1 plus uh, this is for a pair of their bookshelf speakers uh, they dropped the price down to 249 they had raised the price up to 299 at the beginning of the year this brings them firmly back into smoking deal territory uh, as far as uh, bookshelf size speakers go. And they're closing out the Airmotive T0 Plus pair. That's their kind of smallest. They have the T2s, the T, or I say the T1 Plus, the T2 Plus, T0 Plus is their smallest floor standing speakers. Um, those are down $100 uh, and on closeout for $399. Um, the whole Airmotive lineup is very, very solid. These are pretty amazing speakers for the money if you're looking for a stereo or a home theater speaker. Are these um, the Air Motion tweeters that are featured on that? Mm-hmm. They look sweet. Yeah. You know, for a pair yeah. of bookshelves, at that price point especially, that's, uh, yes, I like that. I like affordable I options. A, I picked up a pair of the, the B1 Pluses uh, refurbished, which is to say somebody bought them and returned them um, for $209. And uh, oh, it's good stuff. Even better. It's good stuff, yes. Yes. Um, I... Uh, I did like a insane 3000 word screed on film scanning. Uh, not apologies to Mr. Heron who had to suffer talking me off of a limb, uh, that not telecina. Uh, I will spare you that screed for the moment. Um, but, uh, if you want to nerd out on film restoration, this is not news, right? A, a huge percentage of films have been lost forever, but check out the film foundation. It's film foundation.org. So, if you haven't heard of it, it's a nonprofit started by Martin Scorsese back in 1990 to protect and preserve motion picture history. So essentially, the Film Foundation claims that half of all American films made before 1950 and like 90% of the films made before 1929 are lost forever. Wow. Um, they're just gone. There were some major fires in some of the studios. There was for older you know, films that nobody really cared about at the time. They may have uh, reclaimed the silver out of the silver nitrate stock. Um, a lot of the films were, you know, disposed of because they were like old nitrate film stock that was incredibly fire prone. In any case, the Film Foundation has restored 925 films and they continue to restore more. In fact, you can actually help, like, I think it's like a buck to restore a frame of film. I feel like I read that on the website somewhere, but they, they're, they're a nonprofit. They take donations. Uh, and something new for them, they're going to be streaming films from their catalog starting May 9th for free. So they call it the Restoration Screening Room. Uh, they're going to make each film available for 24 hours. And uh, Scorsese says, we're looking forward to making these beautiful restorations available to a wide audience. And uh, that many of these presentations will feature restorations that are rarely seen with myself and other filmmakers sharing why these films are important, how they've impacted our lives, and why it's crucial they be preserved. So you get, you get to hear a director talk about a film and why they think it's important and worthy of preservation. And then you get to see the film. There are not a lot of what I affectionately would think of as art houses left in the United States, you know, where you could say, I mean, I happen to have one that's like a half mile from my house, but uh, most places don't have, it's not easy to see a lot of these films. And, you know, the more obscure a film gets, the less likely you are to ever see it on a screen. So props to Scorsese and the Film Foundation for making these films, for streaming these films, right? Digitizing them, which is kind of how I got on the whole film scanning telecine rabbit hole of doom. Um, it's cool, right? It's true, though. Classics and uh, I would say even smaller production sized films generally. Yeah. You're not going to find that at your commercial cinema. That's not yeah. what they're there for. So if you perchance happen to live near a place that does do that kind of screening once in a while, 
hit that place up, man, and support those kind of businesses so you can actually yeah. go into a cool small theater and watch something that is totally different. Than what, I mean, you, it's crazy than that, what you're going to receive from the commercial side of it, at least. Yeah, I mean, the High Point Theater, which is probably less than a mile from my house, they have everything, everywhere, all at once playing, and the Northman. Now, I think the Northman's got a fairly wide release, but um, it's cool. And the, uh, they had a lot of the films that were getting buzzed at the Oscars uh, long before they were available to stream. So props to uh, anybody that's keeping a small theater open. And please take a minute to help support them because, the, you know, they help keep content being created for all of us. And this is a good thing. Um, we'll have a link to the film foundation in the show notes. Um, something else I was kind of fascinated by as I was nerding about 18 of the British film Institute's 75 most wanted films, kind of lost films that they were trying to recover have been found since the, the list was originally released in 2010. Um, it's kind of crazy how some of these older films have turned up. Um, hundred year old films found in the basements of building that were facing destruction. Like some guy was going in there with a sledgehammer, like, Hey Jimmy, what's that? <laughs> you know? And somebody like called somebody and called somebody. Another one that stands out, uh, Fritz Lang's original 1927 cut of Metropolis, uh, which is like the original dystopian science fiction flick. 25 minutes of footage that everybody thought was lost was found in the Buenos Aires film museum in 2008. People thought for decades that they would never be able to to put Fritz Lang's original cut together. Technically, they still haven't. There's like five minutes of lost film left, but like 25 critical minutes that kind of set up the relationship between all the characters in this movie was found, restored, and then released, cut into, uh, uh, you know, a longer version. I, I find it kind of crazy, you know, nice. people finding distribution prints, you know, uh, in storage in Australia or something like that. It's it's pretty wild, some of the stories about how these things are turning up. So, I hope more continue to be found. And brought to light, baby. Oh, my goodness. We have been uh, thanking our longest, uh, our, our longest running supporters on Patreon. And we want to give a shout out to six more of them this week. Uh, you know, do me a favor. Email me or better yet, go on patreon.com slash AVXL and message me. Uh, I, I, I traditionally have not used people's last names. If that is okay with you or if you would prefer it that way. Uh, feel free to shout out. I'm kind of curious what y'all think. But uh, Joe, Andrew, Tim, Timothy, Sean, and John, um, props to all of you for your long-term support of AVXL at patreon.com slash AVXL. We appreciate your patronage. Uh, we thank everybody who showed up for our hangout last week. And we're going to experiment with some earlier hangout times since we had some requests for earlier East Coast times. Um, that was a really uh, fun hangout. The last one it we was. just did. I enjoyed it. It was good. We had some very good conversations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> went on longer we like than I thought it would. People. But hey, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's nice to talk to people. Yes. It's very exciting. And see oh, my them. goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, we, uh, my wife and I went to see Henry Rollins during Spoken Word this week, doing Spoken Word this Ooh. week, which was really crazy to actually be in a room full of people watching someone uh, making everyone laugh their asses off. It was good. It was very strange. But uh, if you're thinking about going to see Henry Rollins on a tour this summer, go see him. He's still awesome. Was it the Double Down Saloon in Las Vegas? I think that's oh, what it's yeah. called. They have. We saw the People's Whiskey playing there. <laughs> they have open mic for their for people who just want to you know throw down their version of either poetry or <laughs> uh, what have you and uh, comedy. I do miss that. <laughs> oh my goodness, that was a that we've it's we have seen some place. wonderful. <laughs> yes the happiest place on earth you know uh props to the double down saloon a a a, 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 a i am sober but that bar has saved me i'll just leave it there it's the anti las vegas if you've had too much of the strip and the sound of pinball machines pinball machines goodness slot machines mr norton they're called slot machines i digress um ron has a question he posted on patreon.com slash avxl Proud to be back supporting you on Patreon. Now my question. Thanks, Ron, for your support. With 98-inch TVs hitting the high side of affordable, when do flat panels get too big to move in and out of a home? I'm already having flashbacks of helping to move friends' sofas back in my 20s. Ron. Um, 
you know, the flashback to helping move your friend's sofas in college is solid, particularly if you live in, you know, an urban metropolis that has, for example, I'm thinking of the five-story walk-up I lived in in beautiful Hoboken, New Jersey. You know, I think 85 inches. I, I, I like moving furniture. I'm weird. I have moved furniture for almost everyone I know. Um, or help move heavy. It's just, I, I, I like moving stuff around. I'm good at it. I'm like Tetris boy packing the van when somebody's moving. Um, I think 85 inch televisions are already a righteous pain in the ass to install. They absolutely require at least a second and possibly a third body to keep them safe when you're bringing them into the house. It's one of those things where I highly recommend you do not unpack a large television until you get it to the room it's going to be installed in. Um, totally. You know, they take a fair amount of care in setting up, and if you're not attaching them, you know they need a hefty, uh, they need a hefty mount to hang them on a wall, and you really need to tether them to the wall if they're, you know, if you're going to put them on a, you know, a credenza or some other piece of furniture, you really need to tether those televisions to the wall because they are big enough to do some damage if they fall over. As far as Samsung's lone 98-inch television, which is $15,000, as far as that goes, I would much rather install a world-class projector and a 100 to 120-inch screen, uh, and you would still have five to seven or eight thousand dollars left, depending on how world-class you went on that projector. You know, you could you could easily spend eight grand and get a pretty badass high-definition. 4K HDR 10 plus experience on a projector with a larger screen that's much less likely to, you know, (laughs) it's all relative. Oh, yeah, it is. We'll talk about it It next week. But Sony just unleashed a trio of new laser projectors that tick Mm. up into the five digit price range. So, you know. You can go either way. And always an LCD, well, at least a well-built one, will always be brighter than a projection yeah. setup. It'll handle room lighting a l- much better than any projector could, really. Uh, this unless is true. you're just going nuts with it. But, yeah, like you said, for doing 120-inch or even 150-inch screen size, that is big. That's, you know, 10 feet plus. And yeah. that's where you can really save some money. Again, like you mentioned, it's when you're going to install something like this, like the last 85-inch TV I just looked at, uh, you want a solid wall mount, and you do not want to remove it from the box until it is ready to go and everything else has been taken care of. It's like a one-shot deal. Just get it in there. Personally, I would sell that TV with the house and let the new owner... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let the new owner deal with it. But if you do have to move it, that's where you would want to save the box. And that box is going to be gigantic. Huge. If you, if you really want the best chance, you need to save all that packaging in as pristine of condition as possible. Yeah. And then repack it perfectly. And then palletize the thing. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, add all that up and then just see like, hey, uh, we're not moving this. Yeah. <laughs> or giving it away to the movers and they can do whatever the hell they want with it. We'll get another one delivered oh right to goodness. right to the door but true yeah and we'll see 93 inch oleds this year so wow at some point so these displays are getting quite the big and 85 inch is a nice size it's kind of that where it's still yeah. in the realm of affordability but you're getting into something that's almost cinema like projection style sizing and it can right. look fantastic in a room that that can support that size of a screen 85 inches is a big screen, especially if you're you're not more than eight or ten or twelve feet from it, um, eight or ten feet from it. Uh, it, but you know, my problem is is having had a 100 inch screen for so long. <laughs> totally, <laughs> it looks so much smaller. Oh yeah. Uh, but if you have any kind of if you have a lot of light in the room, it's vastly more practical to go with an uh, LCD. I feel comfortable in saying that we will not see televisions get getting into i don't i don't anticipate us seeing anybody seeing you know 100 inch plus lcd screens anytime soon um, there's not a huge demand for them you know the, the yield on those i would be very curious what the yield on those look like but also at some point they become incredibly difficult so much of the design in an 85 or 90 inch television is the structural rigidity of the enclosure because if you twist the lcd it is going to crack um, and that's, uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure there'll be like 25, 100 inch flat panels next year now that I've said that, but at some point there's a, a real diminishing return on, on kind of like the cost of producing them and transporting them. Um, 
versus how many they're actually going to sell in the real world. That is a big television. Without a doubt. Big, big and good. Mm, 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 mm. 98 inches. Man, that would be that would be hairball. That's that's a three person television to hang. Possibly four. Maybe six. <laughs> Take your time. And, and yeah. maybe roll in the cherry picker. <laughs> Help with placement. <laughs> oh my goodness. You never know how useful a forklift is until Also keep in mind too, for TVs I've dealt with in that size range, not as large yeah. as ninety eight inches so far. I think I did a ninety two was the largest L C D I've actually worked on. The heat these displays can put off is generally going to, they scale with screen size, It's a, it seems at least. And when you talk about running one of these displays in its HDR mode where it's going for max brightness, that's where you really have to start thinking about, you know, the heating and cooling of the room. It's one thing to be in a cold basement with this display and it's providing the warmth. <laughs> but if that's not what's desired, you may end up having to run air conditioning or something to make that room the way it should be. Granted, yeah. It's, it's a terrible problem to have, but either way, you're, you're, you're getting up there in the size (laughs) of things. And I'm looking forward to seeing more options though, in that 90 inch range, especially for folks that they need something that's coming close to what you can do with the projector, but it's in a room that you just can't really do projection properly. It's funny, right? Because televisions have gotten so light for the most part, uh, 55, 65 inch televisions are so light. The shipping weight of that 98 inch television is 218.7 pounds. The product with the stand is 166.9 pounds. The 98 inch class QN 90A Samsung Neo QLED 4K Smart TV is 135.4 pounds to hang off your wall. And that's one of the reasons I believe that, at least with the C-Series, I need to confirm if they did something similar with LG's G2 series, at least for 2022, but making the transition to carbon fiber in terms of the build Mm -hmm. and the framing to reduce the weight by a significant percentage and to make these a little bit lighter. However, if you take things a little too thin, going back to the Samsung S95B real quick, their QD OLED, I have been seeing reports that it's common to remove one of these from the box and have it actually slightly curved due to shipping. It is uh, thin and bendable, apparently. It's not as rigid as some other flat panel designs out there. So another reason to uh, be careful with your displays upon unboxing and mounting and and take your time. (laughs) That would be bad. Wear the white gloves. The white gloves of (laughs) destiny. Yeah. Find some large friends to help you hang that television. Um, Daniel emailed asking AV Excel. He says, I have a surround sound setup with some good sounding big older speakers. Unfortunately, they take up a bunch of floor space. They do, however, pump out a bunch of sound and bass. And I got them at great thrift store prices. We'll be moving in a year, and I was contemplating purchasing some new smaller bookshelf speakers to replace my current ones. My price range is about $300 a pair. My question is not what should I buy. My question is what would I be gaining and what would I be losing if I switched from my large floor speakers to the new smaller ones? And what is considered an appropriate small size for a medium-sized living room? Thanks for your awesomely insightful answers. AVXL always brightens my day when I see you in my podcast feed. Aww. Well, thank you, Daniel. Yeah. And uh, also, thank you for being an AVXL patron. We appreciate that. Um, so Daniel's got a collection of floor standards uh, from Techniques and uh, Sony. They're all around 20 years old. Uh, and they're about 32, 37 inches tall. So let's, let's say they're right about a yard tall. What are you going to lose? Well, you'll be losing money because you'll be paying for new speakers. You may or may not be losing bass, right? Your large floor speakers are not that large, and they may not dig as deep in the bass as you'd think from the size of the woofers. I have some super efficient Klipsch Heresy speakers, which I have since, amongst other things, uh, modified the tweeters on and other things. But... You know, they have great big 12-inch woofers, and they go all the way down to kind of 50 hertz, and they just drop off a cliff. And I always laugh because, you know, these speakers are dominated by this great big woofer, but this great big woofer uh, does not go any deeper than speakers I own that are half one third of the size of uh, right. of uh, those heresies. To be and paired with a good that, subwoofer. 
Yeah, and 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 that's kind of the thing here, right? Subwoofers will take care a lot of <laughs> subwoofers will replace a lot of bass that you lose by going to a smaller speaker. Alternately, a lot of modern speaker designs, they have woofers that are, they have a larger X Max, they have larger magnets, they have some other things going on where they will probably dig as deep and possibly with cleaner, uh, with less distortion than older speakers, simply because advances in, you know, engineering and materials technology and all that good stuff. So, you know, if you go down to smaller speakers, uh, you know, if those, if those speakers you have actually dig down to 30 or 40 Hertz, you'll be losing some bass by going to smaller speakers. Uh, and you know, if you go to really small speakers, it's really, you know, it's not that hard actually to lose most of the bass below 80 or 100, 120 Hertz. That's why they have those settings in AVRs, the small speaker settings, which are invariably like 80, 100 or 120 Hertz. Again, a subwoofer makes up for a lot of lost bass on a smaller speaker. One last thing to think about with older speakers is if they have foam surrounds, that flexible thing that connects the speaker cone to the frame of the speaker, uh, they eventually fall apart. Right. So butyl rubber surrounds start showing up in the late 80s, early 90s. Those basically last forever. In theory, they get stiffer over time. It could impact the sound of the woofer. But generally speaking, um, you can refoam older drivers. I would never do a kit for refoaming an older driver, but I have I recognize I I'm pretty comfortable with digging deep into a diesel engine or tearing apart an iPhone, but aligning a circular piece of material around a speaker and applying glue without gluing myself to the driver is something I think is beyond me. The upside is that there's professional services that refoam speakers uh, all around the country. It's not that expensive. But generally speaking, older speakers, if they have foam surrounds, the foam eventually uh, dries up and disintegrates. So at some point you will need to replace those surrounds. And if you notice, if you have an older set of speakers and the bass starts tapering off, pull the speaker cover off, uh, <laughs> pull the grill off the speaker and see if there's, you know, a bunch of dust, a gap between the driver uh, Degradation. The cone and, and the rest of the speaker. Yeah, it's always awkward. So some things you might gain. Bookshelf speakers are really easy to position by comparison, even on stands, because they are smaller and they take up less floor space. Um, the stands will get the tweeters up at your ear level, which is optimal for your listening experience, especially with modern speaker designs. There are some really nice speakers for $300 these days. Um, and at this point, you will be able to sit down and match all of your fronts and your centers and your rears so that you have a surround sound experience where everything is very, 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 very well matched, tonally speaking. Um, you know, you may or may not get some improvements in the quality of your treble and bass, depending on how good the tweeter and the woofer are and the speakers you have, you know, you may find out you get something that sounds a little better to you. Uh, again, you know, uh, you bought these from a thrift store. They've probably been used for a long time. You know, it's funny if you don't abuse speakers, they can last halfway to forever, but uh, it's kind of amazing. There's some good stuff going on with a lot of speakers. There's a lot of, I, you know, I still have a set of Paradigm speakers now that are probably going to be 30 years old next year. Um, they still sound fantastic. Especially if you pair decent speakers with a subwoofer that can handle that specific yeah. part of the frequency response, leaving less work to do for your main channels. And that can prolong the life of a product, most definitely. Especially if the AVR is, you know, doing the heavy lifting in terms of determining where the frequencies are going uh, to yeah. which speakers that handle it the best. And that's a good point. Yeah, There was a great test that Sean Olive did um, uh, over at Armin. And there's an AES paper on it. And essentially what they did is they did, they blind tested, they, well, first they did a visual test of three sets, three or four sets of speakers. And a couple of them were big, massive, manly, audiophile looking speakers, you know, the size of refrigerators. And some other ones were little tiny speakers that would, you know, blend into a Japanese three mat apartment um, in fit more appropriately in a three mat apartment and still allow you to sleep. Uh, or have floor space to sleep on, right? And, you know, when they did the visual testing, people were like, the big speakers sound amazing and the little speakers are trash. And then they pulled an acoustically transparent screen in front of all the speakers so you couldn't see which speakers were making the sound. And oddly enough, they all sounded pretty good 
practically maybe even the same when they all say, you know what I mean? Like a lot of what we think about with big speakers, there's a lot of, you know, your brain goes, big speaker must sound better. But the reality is, is if you, if you do a good job and it's not that hard to do of, you know, matching the, the crossover point between your speakers and your subwoofer, it is a pretty fantastic experience. Beware of personal yeah. bias. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, Visual sighted tests are complicated. I'll just leave it at that. But, you know, it's, you know, you can get some amazingly small speakers these days. I will say once you get to a certain point, speakers can still sound good as, you know, I have discovered that I prefer when I can fit them. I prefer speakers that can move more air because that gives me a little more volume and impact, especially in the low end. Right. It's amazing. You know, one of the one of the wire, one of Butterworth's choices over at the wire cutter is a very small, very easy to position set of Polk surround sound speakers. And the nice thing about those, you can fit them anywhere. They're easy to put in kind of the you know the appropriate spot for a surround sound setup. They're inexpensive because they don't require as much materials as a big speaker. And then you can you know carefully position your subwoofer and get that bass sounding pretty good. You know, uh, I prefer a a little bit of a bigger bookshelf speaker when I could fit it. But I also maybe I am just visually conning myself into believing those Elacs sound better (laughs) because they move more air. Oh, no, they do sound better. (laughs) That's a good speaker. Good speaker company. It is. Yeah, they do some good stuff. They do some really good stuff. So hopefully, 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 hopefully that helps you out, Daniel. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I just finished Tokyo Vice. What's that? Uh, HBO Max series about a reporter that that is one of the first English reporters for a major Japanese newspaper and uh, covers the water trade and Yakuza and other things in uh, in Japan. Um, Good stuff. A lot of stuff going on. Visually stunning, really interesting is somebody got to spend a, a very tiny amount of time in Japan. My wife also taught English in Japan and sort of in the era where this is supposed to take place. So it was a hoot watching her react to it. I enjoyed it a lot. I will say that I feel like they ended it halfway through which I hope there's a season two. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't leave me hanging. If there's not a season two, <laughs> I'll be a sad camper. <laughs> Don't cancel yeah. this show. <laughs> yeah. give, it, give it at least you know. one more. Well, they set something up in the beginning, and I thought they would finish it off at the end, and either I missed something and didn't realize it, or uh, maybe I did. Maybe I have to watch the last two or three episodes over again. I'm old. I could have fallen asleep and missed something critical. Or it could be the plan <laughs> of a five-year story arc, and it's only on year one. <laughs> There'll be things in that very first episode that apply years later. Oh, my goodness. My wife's watching uh, the conclusion of Ozark. And, uh, you know, my prediction is that it's going to be like the final scene in Hamlet, that everybody's going to die. If that is a spoiler, I apologize. I have not seen it. I do not know. (laughs) All good. (laughs) There's some tremendous acting in that series though and some incredibly poorly behaved humans oh my goodness but uh see that's on netflix right i'll have to take a look yeah check it out yeah i recently completed a optometrist visit and it turned out my prescription changed slightly for the first time in Many, many years. Let's put it that way. Oh, wow. To the point where everyone at first was like, why? Why did my vision change? But I will say I'm wearing my new computer glasses right now and the pixels are extra crispy. I will say it's not a big change. It was a rather (laughs) small change. But still, I feel like everything's fine tuned once again and I'm enjoying it. Now I have this desire to look at things very carefully. So (laughs) this plays well into my plan for world domination of video <laughs> so <laughs> i just still remember when i was trying to i was trying to solder something and i couldn't get my face far enough away from the printed circuit board to actually be able to see the tip of the soldering iron clearly and i was like this is not right and my wife's like you need reading glasses dummy and i was like oh 
And then I got reading glasses and I was actually able to solder things again and read without, you know, holding it at the farthest possible fingertip hold at the length of my arm. And I was like, oh, this is much more comfortable. For me, the hassle is safety glasses. If if I can leave my regular glasses on, I'll just use those. But when it comes to doing very close up work like you just talked about, that's a scenario where I'm best if I just take my glasses off and I can see it pretty damn close up to my face and get right in it. But... Unless I have a pair of, you know, transparent or or normal safety glasses just laying around, which I do, actually. I should probably just keep a couple pairs in my damn bag anyway. At all times. <laughs> always wear safety glasses. Always, always, always. Whenever you can. Uh, some kind oh. of protection in front of your your wonderful biological cameras and uh, protect those protect those balls. So to speak, I have a I have a friend who's a, a very engineering kind of guy. He's very much a by the book engineering kind of human being, and uh, religious about safety gear. And the one time he didn't put safety goggles on, he whacked the end of something he was working on, uh, like a, a I want to say like a shock absorber end or something, right? And it knocked loose the tiniest possible splinter of steel that popped right into the side of his eyeball. And so he basically had to sit there holding his eyeball open um, till they got to the hospital and got the thing plucked out of his, uh, of his, of his orb of his eyeball. <laughs> you are giving me a flashback to a YouTube channel. I watch about a person who does Oof. high performance framing for commercial projects, uh, wood framing. Right. This person has never worn safety glasses. And this week, they spent a whole episode talking about how they will always wear them from now on after having something very similar. I think they shot a nail or something and a small particle of metal went into the eye and it could not be removed with the microscopic uh, forceps. And they Ooh. had to literally grind part of his part of his eye out in order to remove it and to keep it from. And of course, that he waited unpleasant. and he waited a while. And then it turned out about 1 a.m. in the morning, things went haywire to the point where he couldn't deal with it anymore. If you've ever had your eye scratched, the cornea in particular, it almost just it literally physically makes you close your eye and you can't open it. And uh, anyway, all things considered, uh, at least it sounds like the metal was eventually removed, although not in the most ideal way. And yeah, now, now he is, he is the ultimate safety glass proponent. It's always when you least expect it, the... man, you gotta, well, it's something is like, you know, it's like ear protection. I mean, safety you know, squints, <laughs> just squint. Robert and I grew up in the seventies and eighties. And you know, I, I, I never, never occurred to me that people, I, nobody wore ear protection. I ran a chainsaw for a significant number of hours per month, you know, all through the early eighties, never occurred to me to have hearing protection on. In fact, I don't remember seeing anybody using <laughs> hearing protection, much less safety goggles. So just protect your hearing. Now you'll thank us later. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, if you're in a musical venue, by the way, you don't have earplugs, uh, ask at the bar. They often sell them for like a dollar a pair. And it's better to, you know, there are lots of fantastic manufacturers of music-friendly earbuds. But if it's, especially if it's a loud band, get some hearing protection in there so you can still hear when you're 40. Yeah. Trust me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at AVXL. Uh, if you need a hashtag, hashtag AskAVXL works just fine. If you have a question, if you're looking for a screen, a set of headphones, earbuds, you got some audio questions, some video questions, do us a favor, email askatavxl.com. And as always, thank you to all of our patrons at patreon.com slash AVXL. You make this show possible. Thank you for making it happen. That, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.